You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast, stories from the refugee crisis. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. thrown in the deep end and I'm sure we made mistakes but it was this really steep learning curve and we really had to to just get stuck in and do the best that we could. So far on the Worldwide Tribe podcast we've heard from some of the amazing people that I've met over the last few years. This episode is a little bit different. It goes deeper into how the Worldwide Tribe first began four years ago. The voice you just heard was my brother Nils and this episode is about our story. Through our conversation, we share how working with refugees and starting the Worldwide Tribe and then Jangala Wi-Fi, which we'll tell you about later, changed our lives forever. I often get messages on social media from people who are feeling unfulfilled in their work and their life. I hear from people who are wanting to do more, but feel stuck and unsure what to do or how to do it. I recognise that feeling because I felt the same. Today, we're talking about how that changed for us. Through listening to a deeper intuition and feeling and having the self-belief that it's possible, anyone can make a difference in this world. Nilsi, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure (laughs) to be here finally. I mean, I've kind of been here for a lot of the podcasts and seen you recording them and stuff, but it feels weird being this side of the microphone. Why I really wanted to have you on the podcast is because I wanted to go right back to the beginning of the Worldwide Tribe. With just at the four-year anniversary of Mez being here, and that marked the beginning really as well, right? So if we go back just for over four years ago, 2015, the summer, what did our lives look like? I mean, I was working in advertising. I was working in the creative. I don't think I was getting that much fulfillment out of it. It wasn't, I don't think it was a job that I would have ended up doing for the rest of my life if this hadn't have happened, but it was a nice stopgap. It was quite a, quite a fun place to work and it's a cool environment. So I was kind of just hopping along doing that and you were working in fashion. And yeah, I think probably it was the same for you. I don't know if you were that fulfilled with that either. I think we're both kind of looking for other stuff and we'd spoken before about starting our own businesses and we'd had ideas and we'd actually, you know, started developing some of these business ideas and stuff. And I think we'd always thought we'd work together at some point on something like this. That was kind of in the plan, but we never knew what until it all kind of fell in our lap. It's so true. I remember having these ideas of like, you know, one day giving a TED talk and one day giving talks in schools. But I was working in ethical fashion at the time. I always thought it would be about that. I thought that was my passion, fair trade and organic cotton. We really didn't know anything about refugees and the refugee crisis, did we? No, we knew nothing about that or running a charity or or even just running a business or starting our own business. We We didn't know what any of that looks like. I mean, it was a pretty steep learning curve. 
So what happened? What did make that change? Well, I guess Mez is the centre of it all, really, isn't it? Mez changed our lives. So I guess we got our mum to blame, really. Mum really wanted to foster, and it was her and dad that decided to foster a refugee. And that's what got us interested in the refugee crisis. I think it was even her that said, why don't you just go check it out? I think it was. I remember sitting in the garden having breakfast, and I think dad was reading the paper, and he was reading that there was swarms of migrants and marauding migrants or whatever kind of wording was being used at the time but whatever it was it was pretty dehumanizing it was not nice terminology that was being used and we kind of had questions that we were asking didn't we things like who are the people that were there and why are they there and what happened to them and all of those things that I really felt like the the newspapers were not really answering and it was a curiosity that we both had that really encouraged us to make that first trip and the encouragement I guess yeah of our mum to say yeah I want to know too like go and make a film go and find out go and talk to some people yeah for sure I mean we really had no idea about the the situation the crisis and i guess that was our first kind of fact-finding mission and seeing what was going on this was the trigger to us planning our first trip to the refugee camp right on our doorstep in calais northern france known as the jungle it was scary as well just driving into a random refugee camp i remember being being quite scared about it and being like can we just do this Lots of people put that thought into our head, didn't they? They really said, like, you know, you can't just go to a refugee camp. And, like, how do you get in? And all of those limiting beliefs were there. Yeah, I mean, I I had those limiting beliefs because, you know, you've got no idea what the situation is. It's a big unknown. So it is scary. I think I was probably a bit more worried about it than you were. You were just kind of, oh, yeah, we'll just go and see what happens. I was a bit more like... Well, yeah, like it's a refugee camp. We didn't know if there'd be some UNHCR person on the gate being like, no. And we kind of expected that there would be, didn't we? Because you have the idea like refugee camp, that there would be some kind of centred control or some kind of organisation to make sure that they knew who was coming in and who was going out. Yeah. We actually found the camp to be more of a slum with no entry restrictions and very easily accessible. Also in terms of distance, it was so close. Really easy. It's just over the water. Mm. And also the camp was so visible from the road. On that main road, as soon as you got off the Eurotunnel, you'd drive a little bit and then you could really see it. And that made it really close to home as well because it was right there. Yeah, and even before you see the camp, you see the people who are all along the motorway and around that area, just wandering around, like whether they've been trying the night before or if they're on their way to try somewhere that day or that evening. And they were quite visible. They did stand out. People don't usually hang around by the side of a motorway. You know, it's not not usually a place that people congregate. So do you remember how you felt when you arrived in the camp for the first time? It's quite a weird feeling. It's a, it's a, it was a strange place, you know. I'd never been anywhere like that. It's a bit kind of, yeah, overwhelmed, I guess, that that was there. And you can, this was early stages of the camp, so it wasn't as developed as it became but you could start to see these shops and stuff popping up and roads and the church and things like that and i remember osman and his shop i think that was the first shop in the camp yeah when we first went there that the church was there and that was pretty much the only building that wasn't a tent that people were sleeping in but then osman showed us the shop and that was the shop and restaurant and that's where we that's where we first ate as well i think or where i first ate yeah, he cooked for us always every time we went, didn't he? Yeah, yeah I remember Osman viv- vividly. And I think he might have been one of the first people that I really spoke to in the camp as well. 
he was so young, wasn't he? As he well. was really young. And what I remember about Osman was one, his entrepreneurial spirit. I couldn't believe that he was in the camp and instead of building a shelter with the minimal resources that he had. And a lot of the Afghans did this, actually. They built a shelter for commerce as a shop or a restaurant and then kind of slept in the, in, on the floor or in, in the back. I mean, there wasn't really a back because it was literally just this tiny little room. But they were co- quite commercial in their thinking, weren't they? Yeah, for sure. Although Osman wasn't all that business-minded because he always fed us in the restaurant that he was building and always refused to take any money from us. We had to insist every time that this is how a restaurant worked and force him to take it. And Osman also had this amazing story of how he'd got to the camp. I remember him telling me that he'd walked all the way from Afghanistan. He'd done most of the journey on foot and that he had come with quite a group of Afghans and that they were walking through the forest in Bulgaria in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah. And he he tripped and he fell and a stick went through his eye. He had to go to hospital in Bulgaria and the group left yeah, him behind. he still behind. had a scar on his eye, I remember. Yeah, and he'd spent a couple of weeks in this hospital in Bulgaria where he didn't speak the language and he didn't really know what was going to happen to him. And then he carried on alone from there and found the rest of his group in the Calais jungle and they were reunited and he felt really positive and happy about that and actually really happy to be there. Mm, yeah, I remember now. I remember. It's all coming back. Because that was a thing, wasn't it? That's really clear from the off with the camp that there was a community there, that Osman was reunited with his mates and there was the Afghan community, the Sudanese community, the Eritrean community and the Ethiopians around the church. People had their own groups. Although I will also say that they did generally interact, that the Sudanese and the Eritreans did go to the Afghan shops and restaurants and that everyone lived pretty peacefully alongside each other for the yeah, most part. Yeah, right? they charged their phones off the generators in the restaurants and people did stick to their own groups, but I think anyone would, you know, you've got the same language and the same culture, so mm-hmm. they're people you hang around with. And the cultures were different, the differences between the areas and how they built. Really different. Sudanese people were so much more about homely kind of community vibe and everyone cooking for each other whereas the afghans they did look after each other but they also were quite savvy with you know making shops and restaurants they were businessmen in order to survive in calais they needed resourcefulness they needed perseverance they needed all these traits that if they were allowed into the uk would be really really positive and that we would need those things within a job they would be like good qualities and skills to have right yeah for sure they definitely weren't coming here to scrounge off benefits they wanted to work with whatever oh, people wanted to work yeah I remember that being one of my first thoughts there as well. It seems so crazy that these people are here doing nothing and wanting to do something and nobody's making use of that. Why could you not have a factory there that you just let all these people work in and pay them a wage while they're waiting and then, you know, you could help them with their processes. You could use this situation. That's a workforce that are desperate to work, but you're not letting them. You're so right. It seemed like such a waste of potential brilliant minds as well there were very educated people in that camp right we never had a problem with language because a lot of people spoke english a lot of people spoke multiple languages they were doctors and lawyers and i think that's something that people forget as well yeah yeah there was a lot of people that spoke english but a lot of people that didn't as well and i remember that being a thing that i realized quite early on didn't really matter if people didn't speak much english you still managed to have conversations with people and learn about what they'd been through it was never really that big of a deal when people ask me after the first few times, but do they speak English? I'm like, some do, some don't. Like, well, wouldn't that be hard? I'm like, well, actually, no, it's, it's, it's not really that hard. You, you work it out. It's amazing how much you can communicate with someone without 
perfectly knowing each other's languages. Yeah, I remember Jimma, who literally seemed like one of our best mates, and he didn't speak any English at the time, but we still managed to like laugh so much. I don't know how we got each other's jokes, but we definitely did. Yeah, and he still makes us laugh now. We're still, still in contact with him. Still makes us laugh now. I never ever expected in our little bubble of Kent to London life and you know yeah we may have traveled before but never would I have expected to have heard the stories that I heard in that first trip firsthand from people's mouths. Yeah it was really really quite an experience and also so strange because often you're having fun with playing games and even if you can't speak much of the same language you're really as you said was Gemma having a laugh and communicating in a fun way and just having a good time together but then when you do start to speak about their stories you realize how much they've been through and when you're just hanging out and laughing they're just the same same as us you know everyone's the same but then you realize actually they've been through so much more than we could ever imagine Yeah, and I I remember sometimes recognising that in the quiet moments in the camp or between conversations or when we were sitting around the fire, you know, in months after that first trip, that when you weren't engaged in, like, fun conversation or joking about music or, like, dancing or singing or eating or whatever you might be doing, sometimes you'd just catch someone out of the corner of your eye and they'd be just sitting there for a second in silence and the pain was quite palpable. The things that they'd been through were quite palpable and... That was something that I hadn't experienced before in our close circle of friends, you know? Yeah. From one minute thinking, you know, we've got so much in common, then being like, actually, these people have been through stuff we can't we can't even begin to imagine. Um, that was really quite a powerful experience to realise that. Yeah, and it felt also weird to me that coming home from that first trip that we could get on the Eurostar so easily that we could cross the border from France back into the UK in our car comfortably there we were on our way back and people had been telling us that they were literally risking their lives every single day every single night to make this journey yeah that felt weird for me I remember that having a big effect on you just seemed so unfair it was so unjust it was just like why why like literally there's no reason I don't deserve this any more than you if anything they deserve it more than we did because they went through this crazy thing to be able to get as far as they've got if anyone's worked for the right to get to the UK it was these people yeah yeah they really had so coming back from that first trip in Calais something quite life-changing happened, right? I really wanted to kind of talk about it in the podcast because I think that a lot of people might have questions as to how the Worldwide Tribe started, how all this began, how we kind of quit our jobs and started doing this full-time. And it really was quite a transformational chunk of time, very small amount of time, wasn't it, that changed everything? So what happened? Yeah, we got back from Cali that day and on the way back, I remember you writing... You know, trying to get all your all your thoughts down about that day. We spoke to so many people and we had these really incredible, interesting and deep conversations about their journeys and about why they were there and what they wanted from life. And it got really emotional at a lot of points during that day. And yeah, you were really good at just writing this all down. And I remember you, you taking note of it all and then later on in that evening, putting it into a Facebook post and, and just popping it on your personal mm-hmm. Facebook. Writing had always been a way for me to kind of process things like I've always written a diary since I was yeah, little it's yeah, just one of I the ways you always writing a diary when we were growing up it was a way that I really felt I could release 
some of the things that I was feeling and thinking and kind of get them out. It's like the process of morning pages where you just kind of purge all of the thoughts that are going on in your mind out onto paper and then they're kind of out of your brain. And I love that process. And I know it's not for everyone, but I remember too, like sitting on the Eurostar and you get like 40 minutes of just kind of waiting and writing, writing, because I didn't want to forget the stories that we heard that day. And I think that's what you really tried to capture in your post and what you wrote on that first Facebook post. And I think it was just really perfect timing because there were other people out there who had the same kind of questions that we did. That's the reason we went, you know, we, we, we had these questions about the camp and about the people there that we weren't really getting answered by the media. And I feel like that first post was a bit of an answer to those questions. And a lot of people were probably wondering the same thing. And I think that's why I got so much traction. Absolutely. So basically, after we got home, I was writing down my thoughts and I did want to share with my friends and family and the people around us because I knew that we would be going to the camp again because there were so many people there that needed their basic needs covered. Things like warm clothing and shoes and stuff like that you know they were cold at night and they were hungry during the day and I really felt like you know we could do what we could to meet those needs and I wanted to put that out there on social media and just see what we could kind of collect and we made a little just giving page didn't we we put it up with a small goal of about I don't know 100 quid couple of hundred quid max to cover the journey to cover some basic supplies and as you say very very quickly overnight actually I remember waking up the next morning and being shocked by the amount of traction that that post got it absolutely snowballed thousands and thousands of people shared it thousands and thousands of people commented and got in touch and messaged us and said you know how can I help what can I do I want to get involved and that was really the beginning of the worldwide tribe 62,000 times it got shared probably close to 15 million people seeing it it was mad those lines but you did something pretty stupid on that post, didn't you? <laughs> Which definitely made my life difficult for those first couple of weeks. You could say that. But yeah, Jazz decided to write my address and our parents' address on that post to uh, tell people to come and bring stuff to donate to us, physical donations that we could bring out. And uh, yeah. we got this amazing, <laughs> amazing wave of people donating all kinds of stuff. And my small two-bedroom flat that I was living in in Brixton got full very, very, very quickly. My flatmate was not happy. You had to move out for a bit, didn't you? I stayed there <laughs> with the donations, but she moved out to live with her boyfriend for a couple of weeks because it was floor-to-ceiling of donations it, it was, was incredible i remember people turning up to the door with like care packages of stuff that they put together with notes pinned to them like with tears in their eyes really feeling like they wanted to do something wanted to get involved like given an action they took it and they took it to the extreme my phone was just going constantly with people there oh I'm at your house i got stuff to donate because did we put your number on that post as well? Were we mad? It's because, as you always say, I'd never got more than about 10 likes on the status before that. So exactly. we really did not expect this we to happen. We weren't expecting it from your previous, previous social media work. Somehow, every kind of media outlet got in contact with us. I don't know how. I, I, I was at work that day. I remember it really well. I was at a trade fair in the Birmingham NEC, and I kept on getting calls. Like my phone battery kept dying because like there were so many messages coming through, and then... And kept on getting calls from all of these different newspapers and people that wanted to interview me. And I had like no 
media training or experience, obviously. And I also didn't know anything about the refugee crisis apart from this one unique experience that I had had. But I think that that personal account of that first experience is what people were wanting to hear at that time. It was a different stance from this kind of dehumanizing language used in the media. And it came from a very personal place and also from a place that was maybe relatable because I didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. I'd never been anywhere like that before. And so maybe people related to me coming from a very naive perspective. I had found myself in the position of spokesperson for a cause that I cared deeply for but knew very little about. I was asked questions that I didn't have the answers to and I felt totally out of my depth. I soon learnt that all I could do was share my own experience and the things that I did know, my own unique perspective, and that that was enough. We start to learn a lot more about these things, especially with Mez arriving two weeks later. Yeah, poor Mez must have arrived. Like, what the hell is going on? We talked about that in the last episode because we were in the midst of absolute logistical nightmare of sorting out all of these donations, getting the things that people needed to the people that needed it in the camp. And that was a huge responsibility that like weighed massive on my shoulders. How do we get this stuff to people? And then Mez arrived and I felt it even more. He must have been like, does everyone do this in England? Does everyone care about... Calais and refugees because I haven't seen it along the way yeah sorting that stuff was quite an eye-opener as well us starting to realize what was actually needed and what wasn't and we got a lot of stuff that was useless we had to be really kind of strict after those first couple of weeks about what we would take and what we wouldn't because you have to be really clever about how you manage these donations and that was something that we had to learn very quickly and was really difficult well it definitely made people feel good to give but the thing is then we had this problem on our hands which was we filled warehouse upon warehouse across london full of stuff and we were trying to manage with this amazing team that we'd built around us how to organize that and how to get it to Calais and then how to distribute it in Calais and that was a whole nother issue that we'd never done before doing a distribution like that is not easy making sure that you're giving what people need to the people that need it we were faced with this challenge that people wanted to give and so they give like loads of their old shit and we got all sorts of stuff that was just mad for a refugee camp wasn't it yeah it was crazy like high heels and what else do you remember any of the ridiculous donations just uh, tat really just people stuff that people were trying to get rid of dirty clothes uh, yeah but you know we got our process sorted pretty quickly mm-hmm. and we started managing our drop days luckily for me and our parents we stopped t- taking donations at our houses yeah. <laughs> which definitely made it a lot easier and it really started to grow and grow, didn't it? It got yeah. bigger and bigger and bigger. Massively, the online community got bigger and bigger. And what was incredible is that whatever need we put out there, whatever we were writing about that people needed, someone knew someone who knew someone who had the answer. Whether it was one of our friends in the camp had toothache, we'd have responses from dentists from all over the UK to come and pull out a rotten wisdom tooth. Do you remember that, Mohammed, who couldn't eat for months because he was in such pain with his wisdom tooth as a good Sudanese friend of ours. There was always someone who had the answer to what we needed. Yeah, it was really cool. People were so engaged and so willing to help. And that was really amazing to see how much people cared and how people went out of their way to help and make a difference. I recently read some words which said, we have a great untapped resource available to us and each other as a community to provide really supportive healing work. It's not the same as therapy, but it can support you in a way that's just as powerful. It felt right to share this idea here, as that's exactly what we experienced. 
it was really special. When we put the ask out there, people really responded. The engagement levels were like nothing you'd ever seen in your advertising days, hey? <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Because, I mean, it took a month or two for me to get out of my job in advertising. And I remember those first first few weeks of doing what we were doing and all my colleagues seeing that engagement and just being like, oh, if only we could do this for the brands that we're working for and we'd be able to charge way more. People really wanted to to be part of this community and help and do what they could. And so, yeah, it was really cool to see. I think especially for me, it also felt like a big responsibility because we had thousands and thousands of people wanting to do something and then thousands of people in the camp needing their help. And bridging that gap between the two was not something that I had experience in. And it was also something that did have life changing effects on the people in the camp. If I was to fuck up or make a mistake, I felt the weight of that on my shoulders in a big way. Yeah, it was really being thrown in the deep end and I'm sure we made mistakes, but it was this really steep learning curve and we really had to had to just get stuck in and do the best that we could. And that's it. We did our best, right? And we were not the only ones doing our best. At around the same time, there were people like Help Refugees and Calais Action and other groups popping up very quickly. It's important to note that when we first went to the camp on that first trip, there wasn't any NGO that we could visibly see working in the camp. There weren't many UK-based volunteers. A couple, no, perhaps. We, I don't know if we saw if I saw any UK-based volunteers the first time we went, but I remember meeting Maya. Yeah, I didn't meet any either, but Maya stands out. Maya from Lauberge de Migrant, an amazing, incredible Calais local who had been supporting the camp already for a long time and knew everybody there and called herself either Mama or the Queen of the Jungle. <laughs> yeah, she was incredible and she was just this amazing force. The months that followed must have bared heavily on her too because she was the point of contact for a lot of people who then came to Calais to get involved so she was then organizing this big operation of UK based volunteers coming over with truckloads of staff and I just remember being part of this incredible grassroots movement of people who fulfilled the gap where the government were not acting or neither governments were acting the French or the British so what it left is a big hole in the middle which was filled amazingly so by volunteers, individuals. I remember this woman who came to Calais with a foot spa and washed feet for refugees to people that found themselves running the building project with help refugees and building shelters with no experience. It was everyone chipping in and really feeling compelled to take real action. As time passed, we spent more and more time in Calais. We were not just working on getting physical donations of stuff to people. We also very quickly began to try and answer some of those questions that people had on social media. The same questions that you or I had when we first went to the camp. Questions like, who are these people and why are they there and what happened to them, etc, etc. Answering those questions was really, really important at the time because there was a lack of information and still is about the people. So we tried to create content and tell stories that were character-led and human and work with people in the camp to tell their own stories and put that out on social media yeah i think in those first few months it really became apparent that that was what we wanted to do as the worldwide tribe raise awareness and tell stories of these individuals in the camp because there were so many amazing individuals there there's incredible stories beautiful funny people that had done incredible things and we wanted to share that with people exactly so we made our first film jangala with our other little brother finn who was our filmmaker and that really aimed to answer some of those questions 
And then we went on to make another film, The Lotus Flower, which really highlighted the beauty of the camp and what had grown out of the mud as things went on, as time went on, as more and more volunteers came, the camp became somewhere that wasn't just tents in the mud. It was actually a place of dignity and that people could get back some control and some handle on their lives. And like you said, uh, open a shop or go to church or go to school and learn English or go to restaurants. And there was a real sense of a town that was being built. And the architecture of that, to me, was really interesting as well. Yeah, like seeing that pop up, it was amazing. You know, every time we went, like even if we went like a few times a week, so quite often. But you know, if you didn't go for a week and you came back, it was like, whoa, it's changed so much. It was just being built up and built up, and all these shops and restaurants, hammams. You'd only get your haircut in the camp, wouldn't you? Yeah, two euros for a banging haircut. It was great. <laughs> Barbers, you had everything. They even do you remember the day that someone like created some kind of clay oven and suddenly the bread in the camp was like the most delicious thing ever and everyone had this like freshly baked yeah delicious and flatbread by the end there was like five bakeries in there all serving this delicious fresh naan bread honestly if i've never eaten better food than i ate in the jungle i feel so grateful to have been able to experience world cuisine that we travel far and wide to experience we got that all in this melting pot of a place where we ate afghan spicy eggs in the morning and like you'd love a bit of your afghan chicken wouldn't you and then we'd have those beans do you remember the beans it's making me hungry just thinking about it i know i'm hungry as well mm. always yeah spinach the creamy spinach the cream spin- oh yeah it's delicious there were some real jungle dishes. I don't know if it's because it was the kind of thing that people could get their hands on easily, but lots of the restaurants that served a similar array of foods and they were all absolutely delicious. It was really good and it was super cheap. I always said if I lived in Calais, that's where I'd, that's where I'd take my, my dates. For <laughs> yeah, and for meals. sure. The restaurants had amazing food, but you also had some weird experiences with your food there, didn't you? Well, Sydney's... <laughs> They like sweet food. And uh, Sydney's food is delicious. They chuck peanut butter on everything, which is amazing. Peanut butter salad, you can't go wrong. Delicious. Lettuce and peanut butter. <laughs> it's it's great. I, like one time, they made me this, what I'm going to describe as a spaghetti pudding, which is pretty, pretty wild. I think it was spaghetti and condensed milk and sugar. And it was so sweet and creamy and strange not like anything i'd ever tasted before but it was actually pretty good like rice pudding but yeah. with spaghetti and yeah, recently we were actually at a sudanese friend's house for, it was just before eid wasn't it yeah it was during ramadan because we ate really late so Again, we were starving yeah they made us this delicious dinner and then they brought out this drink which was yogurt and sprite mixed together yeah you were like have i heard that right what is this yeah and they're like yeah yogurt and sprite and i'm like Okay, they're like, do you want some? I'm like, all right. <laughs> you always took one for the team. Yeah. But, you know, yogurt and Sprite, it's actually pretty good. You liked it, didn't you? Yeah. you? It was tasty. I'd say give it a go. You know, it was really interesting because at first I had this idea that I was there to bring food and supplies and stuff for people in the camp. But actually, more often than not, it felt the other way around. It felt like they were cooking for us and looking after us. They definitely looked after us. It was mad. It was really, really mad. And that was a real steep learning curve for me as well. People in the camp had the most incredible sense of hospitality, even in tents. Yeah, I mean, people that had so little wanting to give so much. Yeah, it was incredible. And it unpicked my preconceived ideas of giving and receiving. 
It wasn't about that. It was about sharing and connecting. People say nothing is purely altruistic, and from what I experienced, I agree. Never have I felt more nourished as a human as during this time. I think it's important to mention by this point that you and me had both quit our jobs. We were both completely... Skint. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's not what I was going to say. I was going to say consumed by this crisis that was developing on our doorstep, these people that were living literally right at our front door. And I felt like many people were kind of shutting that door in their face. I've never felt more passionately in anything in my life that I wanted to just shout from the rooftops what we were experiencing, the people that we were meeting, their stories. Like I just felt like nothing else mattered. And I remember in those first few weeks, still trying to go to work, not being able to do my work because I was so distracted and also wishing for those hours back. So we both moved back in with our mum and dad and shared a room for a good old chunk of time, didn't we? Yeah, it was quite funny because mum and dad wanted to foster because we'd all left and then as soon as they fostered we all came back <laughs> so yeah it was quite a squeeze in that house <laughs> and a house full Mez had taken your room and then you and me had to share and then it got to summer and you had this teepee in the garden for months didn't yeah, you yeah lived in a tent for six months and then it got a bit cold by that point we were like right we need to think of a more sustainable solution and we did we made it work I think we didn't know how but we always knew why yeah. Do you think that's a, a good way of putting it? The intention was always so clear and how we felt about it was so strong that we had to keep doing it. And then we did move back to London and I remember thinking, how are we ever going to pay our rent? And somehow, month by month... We made it work. But, you know, I mean, there was a lot of stress and a lot of pressure on us, but it's also a lot of fun. I really felt really lucky to be in that situation where that was my life, where I could just kind of like doing whatever I could for people. And I felt really lucky that that post had got so much traction to put us in that position where we could keep doing it. And I still feel really lucky four years later. I feel the same. I, I think my four years has felt a little bit different from yours at times because I absolutely also have always felt grateful that this is what I'm doing, no doubt about that. And I feel completely fulfilled by it in terms of like, I do find it very important and it makes me, I, I go to bed at night feeling good. However... Fun is not the word I would use for big chunks of it for me. You always held on to this amazing sense of lightness that you could go about this and not take things too hard. And I would feel things a lot more deeply in a negative way. I think it had a negative impact on me sometimes. And it was really good doing this with you because you you did provide me with quite a stable outlook was because at the beginning we had a lot of um, press and attention around what we were doing when there was articles that had kind of negative comments underneath them of which there were a lot especially that big telegraph article do you remember that one poor dad read all the comments underneath it and I found things like that really hard because I, I believed so strongly in what we were doing and I felt that, that by commenting negatively we had to kind of anti-immigration sentiment on these posts also on the posts that we were writing on social media it wasn't even on on behalf of myself it was on behalf of all of the people in the camp that I felt outraged that people didn't see them and, and their stories and their journeys yeah for me the only way to get past that was to laugh at it and laugh at those people because yeah, you're you know, always light-hearted in it I remember you reading out the worst of the comments like in a com comical way and it took me a while before I could get there with you. <laughs> Some of them were pretty funny. 
I think that's the only thing we could do is laugh at them. There's no, like if if you let it upset you, then it's. I mean, it's not going to help in any way, is it? Mm, so sure. Can you remember any of the negative comments that we had? My favourite one was Jazz, Nils, Amber, and Finley. Need I say more? <laughs> I liked. Here come the hippies with the nose rings to save the world. Oh yeah. Oh, this wasn't even a comment. This was actually from the article. But uh, what was it? Jasmine O'Hara, more top shop than medicines on frontier i was like what why are you commenting on what i'm wearing you know that's beside the point i think that was the opening line of the telegraph article as well i was not happy about that but so yeah i think it's still up there google it i'm definitely cutting that out (laughs) (laughs) that was right back in the day wasn't it i think the title of that was better a do gooder than a do badder which i definitely did not was that actually the title (laughs) no way yes that is wild (laughs) So, Nilsi, tell me about Jangala. Tell me about Wi-Fi in the camp. Well, those first few months in the in the camp, we were spending quite a lot of time there, and we just really quickly noticed that food, shoes, and clothes were not the only needs of the people there. And from spending a lot of time there, we constantly having people asking us if they could borrow our phone, if they could call their mum, if they could if we could hotspot them or help them with some form of connectivity because they wanted to let their family or friends know they're okay. And I remember a few times people asked me if they could use my phone to phone home. And there's only so many times you can phone Eritrea when you're as skint as we were without <laughs> it becoming quite an issue. Yeah, it became quite expensive for our phone bill. And we started to think like, this camp needs to have Wi-Fi in it. How, how hard can it be? Famous last words. Yeah, it turns out it is quite hard. Because we didn't know anything about Wi-Fi. We had no idea. We were like, surely someone could just come in and put Wi-Fi in. Surely it's not that hard. But like, luckily at the time, one of my, my best friends, Ben, he was living in Brighton and he was living with Richard Thankey's girlfriend at the time. So Richard Thankey is who we started Jangala with, along with Samson. Richard Thankey, he was working in sub-Saharan Africa at the time as an economist. He was writing about the work that Microsoft were doing, putting Wi-Fi solutions in on quite a large scale, much larger scale than we were working with in the Kelly jungle, to help give people connectivity in sub-Saharan Africa for very low costs. It was really Ben that had the idea and put two and two together, because Ben said to Rich, Hey Rich, you're working with Wi-Fi. He keeps banging on about how he needs Wi-Fi in the Kelly jungle because his phone bill's so high. Why don't you two do something together? So Rich wrote up this amazing plan, um, which he sent to me, and I remember reading it and being like, yeah, we should do this. And I showed it to you as well, Jazz, and we were like, yeah, let's put some budget aside and give it a, give it a go. So me and Rich started working together. First time we met, we went to the Cali Jungle together that day and then we were a little recce, and then next time I was in Brighton with him, starting to build this system and starting to work out how we are going to do it. So we got all these bits together and we just went to Calais over and over again, putting stuff in place and finally put this ropey network that we gaffer taped together, turned it on just after Christmas, just before New Year, December 2015. So it was the first year that we were working in the camp and I remember that I'd never been so cold as those times that we spent on top of like little 
either shelters or little hills in the camp trying to see where we could get best signal. And often me and Rich would be there late into the night, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. I'd be standing on top of shelters, turning antennas to get the best signal. While Rich always seemed to be inside the shelters with a cup of tea and his laptop. <laughs> he was the brains, though. He was the brains. You were the grafter. I was, I was the brawn. <laughs> We turned this network on and it was incredible. We didn't even have to tell anyone and people were just connecting like that instantly. Because it, was, it open, was an open network, right? Yeah, it worked. I was pretty popular and I got quite a lot of nice cups of tea from people. People knew you for it, didn't they? When you were, we were walking the through the camp, guys. the Wi-Fi guys, yeah. We were the Wi-Fi guys. We were seeing thousands of users. We, we saw over 20,000 users for the few months it was there, if not more. I think it might have been more, but it was, it was for a camp which supposedly only had 5,000 people living in it at a time, that's, that's pretty crazy that 20, we had over 20,000 individual users on that network. Also, it's important to mention that lots of people were sharing devices, yeah, right? Yeah, people were borrowing each other's phones and yeah, so it was crazy numbers of people. So I've got a question that I think might be on lots of people's lips who are listening to this because it's a question that we got a lot through social media and lots of people asked us as we were talking about this and that. So refugees have smartphones. Yeah, and the answer is yes, you know, of varying quality. The most important thing that somebody owns, as we said earlier, people that were in that camp weren't poor when they left their country because you have to have money to make the crossings. It's expensive. So the answer to that question basically was a firm yes, that people had smartphones not just to communicate with their loved ones when they could, but also for access to information about their asylum claims, access to education. These are all things that they needed in the camp, right? And that's what the Wi-Fi provided them because it was hard for them to get data in these new countries as they were passing through. It was hard for them to get a SIM card in new countries without a passport. These were all issues that people were facing, right? Yeah, and also even if they did have data and a SIM card, the connection in the jungle was shit. You know, it was absolutely terrible. Really, really slow. It was hard to send WhatsApps to people. Because the site of the camp was pretty much in the middle of nowhere and outside of the town centre and on land that was kind of unused for any purposes and had asbestos in the ground. And That's what we tried to combat. We did various things to make that Wi-Fi usable for large amounts of people, to share that data fairly. We blocked advertising, which uses about 50% of your data. We limited video content to 240p, so the video content was quite low quality. But if people were just browsing normally, web pages would load quickly and they could video call people. People were saying, this is the first time I've managed to video call my family and see my family in six months or a year, you know, or years sometimes. They were saying, I haven't seen my family that long. And to see that was really incredible. This network might sound techie, but actually it was using gaffer tape, upside down plant pots to make it waterproof, right? It was kind of using... We were trying to use the cheapest equipment possible because Mm -hmm. we were using public donations. But the cheapest equipment wasn't always the best equipment for the job. We just tried to use what we could afford in a clever way to make it work for the situation. And it did work. People were connecting and it was amazing, but we did have issues. So what happened after that? Who came on board to make it all beautiful and turn it into the Wi-Fi box that it is now? Well, this is where Samson came on board. Samson had been doing incredible stuff in the Kelly jungle already, making shelters and volunteering. He'd just been on a holiday to Kenya and he'd actually seen some of the networks that Rich had been working on with Moingu and Microsoft. And he'd been like, oh, this is cool. Someone should do something like this in the jungle. 
And he came back and started Googling about it and saw a post that we'd written on the Worldwide Tribe about the network that we put in place. Good old social media, hey? Good old social media. So he got in contact. He sent me an email and he was like, this is what I do. Is there any way I can help? He's a trained sculptor. He worked in set design. So he's really good at building stuff and making beautiful things. And the problems we were finding at that point was bits of the jungle were getting demolished and we were losing equipment. The static way of working where we just put points into different parts of the camp where you'd have like an um, antenna and an access point. So if those places got demolished, then we were losing that equipment. So and we had them on top of shelters, on top of the school, on top of restaurants. Library, and- yeah, libraries and stuff like that. And also people would like borrow things. Sometimes the batteries would go walk about and they'd usually come back, but people would be charging their phones for a couple of days and the Wi-Fi would go off. And the other problem that we had was other grassroots groups were coming to us and saying, this is great, we want to use this in Greece or other locations. We want to, we want to be able to offer Wi-Fi in these other camps. We were thinking, okay, well, how can we make this system with the same qualities but make it more mobile and portable and make it so that we don't have to set it up every time because if we were flying to greece or serbia or kenya for every system that we needed to put in place it would get really really expensive and as i said before we were working off donations and we had to stretch them as far as we could so when samson came aboard we told him these issues and it was really him that started to develop it and design it into this standalone box that we have now so big box is a purple box which can fit into a into a backpack. It's a portable Wi-Fi system that you can send out to a refugee camp or a location anywhere in the world and give Wi-Fi to the people there. And you don't need to have any technical knowledge to set it up. It's very, very easy to use. And we've been sending them out to places all over the world for the last couple of years. So where did the name Jangala come from? It's a good question. Back at that time when we were sitting in the jungle, I think we were sitting in a cafe and we were talking about why the camp was called the jungle. And it turns out that that word jungle comes from a really old Sanskrit word, Jangala, which means barren, rocky landscape. A lot of people assumed that it was a name that the media had put in place it was a derogatory term for the camp, but it turns out, no, it was just a descriptive word that the Afghan people that had first moved there had called it because it was a wild, barren, rocky place. A lot of people commented on the fact that we called it the jungle for that reason, saying it's dehumanising to the people that live there. But we followed the lead of the people that lived there and what they called the camp and everybody who lived there referred to it as the jungle, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what everyone called it. That's what everyone called it. So the first network was called Jangala and that became the name of what is now uh, Wi-Fi I don't even know what to call it a phenomenon <laughs> I mean maybe not a phenomenon but it's a charity and startup that I've been focusing all my time on now so three and a half years on Jangala has grown and gone from strength to strength we're really working on developing the system to be as as good as it possibly can be um, and getting it all over the world to help people that really, really need it. 
So basically, would you say that what started as a worldwide tribe project of trying to get some Wi-Fi into the Calais jungle has now become an organisation in its own right, providing Wi-Fi for refugee camps all over the world? Exactly. That's exactly what I'd say. Couldn't Pretty put cool. it better myself. And who would have thought it? Who would have thought that you'd be working in tech? Hey. I mean, I wasn't expecting it. I'm very lucky that I've that I've got the amazing people that I work with because you know Rich and Samson are incredibly clever guys, and I don't know anything about. Well, I didn't know anything about the tech behind something like this. So I've been really lucky to have all into it at the right place at the right time, and it's super exciting. It's going to be big. I think it's going to be an incredible product, and I'm I'm super excited to see where it goes. Me too. Have you got any stories or any people that you've met over these last four years or standout moments that you want to discuss? Because we kind of skipped from Calais to Jangala and there was a whole kind of chunk of time in between, wasn't there, where we were working in Greece and we were going to Turkey and we went to Jordan. I mean, someone that really stands out to me is, is my friend Khaled. We've all got people that we just kind of got on with along the way. Some people just really stick with you. I remember Khaled being somebody that I met one of my first times in the jungle and just somebody that I'd just always bump into and became quite good friends. And then when the jungle got demolished, we kept in touch and we went to other camps that he was living in and we kind of visited him all over France and he kept kept, kept on trying. I think he was in Northern France for three years and then... Must be a couple of years ago now that he got to the UK, and it's just been an absolutely incredible moment. After like seeing somebody in such horrible conditions for so long, over and over and over again, and then finally hearing that they made it to the UK and they're in a house in the warmth with heating. I think we've never come to appreciate heating as much as when we came back from Calais. Yeah, I don't know if it's because it was by the sea or what, but it was so bitterly cold. Chilled you to the bone there, you know, and just like living in those situ in, the, in those conditions, it was must have been horrific for people that were there, and it still is horrific for the people that are still there. I don't know how people survive, especially the young families that are there now. Since recording this podcast just this week, the entire camp in Dunkirk was evicted. It was home to 1,000 people, including 200 children, mainly Kurdish families. The people who lived here lost the few belongings that they had, just in time for winter. We saw a lot of that, didn't we, when we were there? A lot of unjust police action. Yeah, it's really horrible to witness. The police just taking people's tents and belongings, and it's just this constant cat-and-mouse game of them taking everything. Then the NGOs trying to distribute more tents and clothing and then getting taken again and yeah it just seems like a crazy crazy cat and mouse game of taking stuff away yeah yeah doesn't seem to end because maybe you know demolishing the camp is a very short-term solution but you can demolish the camp but the people don't disappear and it will just happen again and again and until we think of a long term or come up with a long-term solution then this situation will continue because there's nowhere for these people that we're talking about to be, to just be safe in a country where they can just start that life that we're talking about, you know, with a job and a home. Where can they do that? Yeah, exactly. If you wanted to wrap up these last four years, is there anything that you'd say or advice that you'd give for someone who wanted to kind of work in this sector and get involved with refugees? 
I think what's important to remember is that you never know what direction your life's going to go in. So, I mean, don't be too worried about it. But also, if this is something that you want to get into, then just get involved. Just, I mean, you can volunteer. Just like, you just have to give up some of your time and just do it. If you want to get involved in charity, you don't have to necessarily be hired by one of the big charities. You can start your own initiative and just try and grow it yourself. There's so many amazing grassroots groups doing amazing things now. So if you've got an idea, something that you think that will help people, just just give it a go just start just put some time and effort into it and 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 try and have some impact absolutely i think there's two things that i would say in response to that that the idea of like giving up time what i've learned from this time that we've spent in the camps is that i never feel like i'm giving anything i always feel like i'm gaining i feel like i've taken way more than i could ever give that's one thing that i'd love to end on and another thing is that we have the ability now to reimagine this idea of charity for me this isn't about charity this is about connection this is about coming together this is about feeling a real understanding and empathy and truly standing in someone else's shoes, seeing something from someone else's perspective and it broadens your own. And that's what the learning has been for me. It's all about connection. That's why we did the Wi-Fi. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much, Neil C, for being on my podcast. It's been a pleasure to do some reminiscing with you. You've really been the person that's been here every step of the way with thank me thank you very much for finally having me for the through the good and the bad eh yeah yeah four years the highs on and we, the lows. Haven't, we haven't killed each other yet i'm yeah. quite amazed live together work together party together it's a miracle really nils and i have been joined on this journey by some very inspirational people we no longer take physical donations ourselves and focus on sharing stories, raising awareness, Wi-Fi and supporting and fundraising for grassroots projects. But if you do have stuff to give, check out our amazing friends Help Refugees. If you'd like to volunteer with a grassroots group, you can apply with the amazing Indigo Volunteers at indigovolunteers.org. I'd also like to shout out to everyone currently working tirelessly on the ground in camps. Charlie at MRS, the Care for Calais team, RCK, Danica and Chrysandra in Paris, Kelly in Izmir, SB Overseas in Beirut, to name a few. And the people who have inspired us along the way, Mary and Sikanda, Maya, Joe and Joe from Good Chance, you were all part of this journey for us. I hope you enjoyed season one of this podcast. If so, please subscribe and leave a review. It will help us to come back for season two. I'd love to know your thoughts on what you'd like to hear more of for the next season. To let me know, head over to our Instagram account at the Worldwide Tribe. Follow and leave me a comment or direct message. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one Worldwide Tribe. A big thanks to Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode. <laughs>